You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 617 for June 7th, 2023. On this episode, trombonist and educator Bill Lowe. Members of the Jazz Session also get This I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show on which I ask the guests from the main show to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. Bill talks about the places that he finds beauty in the world. You can hear that bonus episode by becoming a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. When you become a member, you'll also get early access to every episode of the Jazz Session, and you'll get occasional behind-the-scenes info and other bonus material. Plus, for every episode of the show, I choose one Patreon supporter to name as the sponsor of that episode this time around the show is brought to you by terry hinty thanks terry bill lowe's new album with the signify and natives ensemble is called sweet cane sweets and other pedagogical prompts here's the opening track Welcome to the Jazz Session. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Jason. It's such an honor to have you here. Sometimes on the Jazz Session, I think, I wonder how I'm going to fill up 30 minutes. In this case, I think, my God, if we did 10 episodes, we would never even scratch the surface (laughs) of what you've been up to. So we're going to go into it knowing that we're going to leave a lot of surfaces unscratched. And uh, we will... Uh, if if my life is uh, lucky, we will do this again, and uh, maybe Please. someday we'll do a we'll we'll talk about the past more than we're probably going to right now. Uh, I want to start with the album, but I think the album is going to give us a jumping off point to talk about some of the major figures uh, in your life. We'll okay. come to that. But I just want to start off with so the album is called Sweet Cane. Uh, it's uh, you and the Signifying Natives Ensemble, and the yes. name of that ensemble is very very intentional. Yes. And I, I hope that maybe we could start there because I feel like that might set the table for the kind of tone or the context of this album. If you could talk about the name of the band. Sure. Signifying Natives, uh, that name is very intentional. Um, it's a concept of mine um, that I've worked with for many years, decades, actually. Uh, it starts from the notion that in our world, Our world is based on 
at least 400 years of enslavement by one set of people of another set of people. So enslavement is 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 nasty and dirty, and, and we don't even have to go into that. One of the realities of enslavement is this notion that people who thought they were people uh, find out that they're natives. You know, oh, natives. And natives are supposed to have a particular place in in the slave-master relationship, uh, and they're not supposed to talk back, they're not supposed to be able to create anything, which is, of course, exactly the opposite of what happens. So the music that I'm most directly associated with and and the dance and the poetry and the novels are all part of a creative process where natives, not even in spite of enslavement, but we use enslavement to create stuff. And that's what's so amazing. It doesn't diminish the nastiness at all. But it, from my point of view, it does uh, enhance our understanding of who Natives and Native culture really is. So there was a time when I was growing up, um, growing up as a musician in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, where the thing was you talk back to the man. You know, the man did this and the man did that, and we're pissed at the man, and blah, 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 blah. And all of that's important and all of that's real. I have this notion that as real as that is, certainly by the 1980s, natives from across, around the world, around the diaspora, uh, exist as articles of uh, entertainment and often wind up... <laughs> pissing each other off in pursuit of being, you know, the head native, joke, joke, the head native in charge. And so I came with this notion around 80s and 90s while I was teaching, primarily at that point, teaching at Wesleyan University, where there are a lot of collection of natives uh, and native musics from around the world. This notion that what was needed was that natives need to talk to each other. And not, you know, like behind the man's back. No, 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 no. We, we don't have time for that. Uh, right out in front. Because certainly as creative beings, we all exist on these platforms that are run by the man anyway. So, but we need to refocus what we do so that we need to spend more time talking to each other rather than talking back to the man. So that's the general idea. Now, I had I took on a very specific um, project of my own, and this was the Signifying Natives project, which was to take text. The notion that natives made, make text is just as revolutionary as saying that a Black woman is a real person. Those are revolutionary statements, right? Because natives aren't supposed to be able to make text. My thing, of course, we do make texts. And in fact, they're some of the major texts in, in Western civilization come from the natives. Not all, but a lot come from natives. So my notion was to take, was to select texts, 
put these texts into conversation with each other and then set these conversations to music. This was basically um, a composition project I set for myself. And, you know, there's one that I did that had to do with um, Ishmael Reed and Audre Lorde, two of the most unlikely people to put into conversation that you can think of. Uh, well, I did it and, it, and it worked pretty well. So I took a text from, from Ishmael, a uh, very short, one of his short, funny poems, and I put that in conversation with Audre Lorde's, um, one of her longer poems, <clears throat> and set that to music. That's, that's what the Signifying Natives Project is. And then, after some years of that, and at the same time that I became totally enamored with um, Gene Toomer's novel, Cain. I conceived this idea of there needs to be a signifying natives ensemble. Group of musicians that, that I knew, that I would call on at various times. And these were musicians who, of course, were good, and, and, and we all draw from the, the, the wellspring of, of of Ellington and Sun Ra, you see, we draw from all of that. And also had, as artists and as people, have a concern about some of the same things that, that I have about. I don't, I'm, I'm loath to use the word politics because the word politics has become misused and disused. But who, who had a consciousness that's perhaps that's a better word. So we would, you know, I'd call people together. We would do, we would do this or that performance, or this or that recording, you know, whatever, whatever it was that we do as musicians. I mean, nothing new. It comes out of the same. Um, the Signifying Natives Ensemble comes out of the same energy that the AACM comes out of or the Collective Black Artists, which is the group that I belong to, because I grew up, you know, I was living and working in New York, not in Chicago. So um, so this idea of a connection, of a focus on music and text, music and words, in a lot of different kinds of ways. So this, and what tended to happen, as always happens, is that the people stopped being such a wide variety of people and got down to being uh, pretty set folks. And it works out because of me as a musician and a teacher. Um, I'm both of those. I, I've always been both of those. My grandmother wanted me to be a preacher. I defied that, but I didn't really. <laughs> so, so music and, and teaching are, are are equally joyful for me. And at a certain point, I don't make a distinction. So, the Signifying Natives Ensemble on the CD that, that we're talking about is, among other things, uh, multi generational. So that. Um, Taylor Holbynum is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. I first met Taylor. Taylor was a high school student at Brookline High School. I was in my second year of teaching at Northeastern University. 
And uh, as because I chose to do it, I wasn't hired to do this, but because I chose to do it, I was mentoring the the the, the student jazz ensemble. And the young lady who was playing piano for them was a friend of Taylor's from his high school. And the high school was going through financial problems and they were cutting the music out and cutting the jazz out. And she came in one day and said, can I have a friend who plays trumpet? Can he come to our rehearsals? I said, can he play? If he can play, or if he even just wants to learn how to play, yes, he can come. Uh, Taylor and I have been fast friends ever since. So he Taylor went from being a high school student, he went to college, uh, but always we we were we were engaged. As it happens, he wound up going as an undergraduate to the same college that I used to teach at at Wesley. But we've always had a, a, a very simpatico kind of relationship. And so over the years, as Taylor grew a lot, musically, and as I grew a lot in age, <laughs> it wound up that I wound up working for Taylor in his in his octet. So whenever I have a, a, a serious project, I'm going to call Taylor. And most of the time, if he's available, he will agree to do it, but not just do it and play cornet. He'll do it in so many other ways, you know, because he's younger than me, so there's stuff that he takes for granted that I have to think about, do I really want to do that? And Taylor just knows how to do it. So uh, so you have Taylor, and you have Hafez, Hafez Modir, who uh, I first met when he was coming to um, decide whether he wanted to do graduate work at Wesleyan and Ethel Musicology. And a mutual friend, Royal Hardigan, told him that he should come see me. So... Back in those days, this was in the 80s, um, when I was teaching there, I, a typical day for me, I had my classes, but I would just meet students all, literally all day. There'd be this line of students outside of my offices all day. So this was one of those days, you know, it was Tuesday. <laughs> and this guy comes in and we started talking. You know, he said, ah, you know, Hafez said I should come talk. I mean, uh, Royal said I should come talk to you. So we're talking, we're talking, talking about music, talking about life, you know. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, I have no idea who this dude is. I've never seen this man before in my life. Who is this man? But I'm talking to him as if we grew up together. I mean, literally. And that's the nature of our relationship ever since then. I mean, I am not Hafez, Hafez is not me, but but there's a there's a, there's again there's a connection. Um, Ken Filiano, the bassist. So you see, there are these different ages. There's different kinds of connections. I've worked with Ken in various so-called out <laughs> uh, ensembles, and again, there's a connection. There's a connection. You know, Ken and I are close in age. Hafez is a bit younger. Taylor is even younger than people like Luther and Kevin, uh, Kevin Harris. Uh, these are people that I've worked with during my time in Boston, and they're just, they're just wonderful musicians. And again, we have that connection. Uh, the lady, the vocalist, at the time that she joined us was 23 years old. She was about the age to be my granddaughter, right? But this incredible vocalist from South Africa, 
So again, there's there's all kinds of signifying native stuff to talk about. So the the that album represents where that project is right now. And it's got all of the you know all, all of the ingredients that, that, that make it the signifying natives project what it does for me. I do want to come back to the the text idea because that is a big part of mm-hmm. uh, the Sweet Cane album, particularly the book Cane that you mentioned. But uh, the album also really brings in uh, two people who, uh, from my reading of your history, loom pretty large in your life, those being Bill Barron and Frank Foster. And, and Frank Foster, yes. uh, yeah, music from uh, both of them appears yes, uh, on yes. this record. And I hoped that you could you could say something. I mean, in my brain, those are kind of wildly different human beings. And right, they are. And that's I, the point. That's exactly, my point. exactly. That's so I was hoping point. you could say something about that because I love that they that they all come together in this beautiful way. Exactly. And I, I both of them gave me the opportunity to do to grow both of them. Uh, when I moved back to New York after, I don't know for what reasons, but when I moved back to New York in the in the 1970s, um, those two men with, in the case of Bill Barron, Bill Barron <clears throat> in the mid-1970s ran a place called the New Muse, which was a children's museum, jazz conservatory, basically, neighborhood conservatory in Brooklyn. And he, had, he taught classes, which I took, took his classes, uh, he had jazz improv one, two, three. I would take on the same night jazz one, two, and three because <laughs> that's what I needed to do. So, and and that relationship between me and Bill lasted forever. Uh, there's whatever the technical, a lot of the technical stuff that I know about music, I learned from him. Um, one of those quiet guys who get stuff done. Incredible saxophonist who's totally unknown everybody knows his brother as they should because kenny is a bad bad dude and bill is 14 years kenny senior bill's dead now but bill is 14 years kenny's kenny senior if you don't mind me interrupting just for one second i will just say that kenny was very recently on this show and talked about his brother so uh i just want to uh, okay. I, I don't want to. De- I don't want to uh, in any way derail you. I just want to say for folks after they listen to this episode, if you want to go back just a few episodes in the archives, uh, you can hear Kenny talk about his brother in that episode as well. So I'll give you a little more context. But please right. continue. And, I just want to get and, that. and I'll listen to that myself. <laughs> uh, and also at that same time, 
you know, I'm a bass trombone player in New York, coming back to New York, and I, I need to meet the cat. So I'm going around, and uh, I w- wound up at a rehearsal uh, with my horn, playing with Frank Foster's big band, Loud Minority, and just loved it, loved Frank. <laughs> the next day, I get a call from Frank. So Frank says, uh, Bill, that's your name, right? Bill said, yes, sir. He said, well, uh, I got two things to say for you. Number one, you're not coming with us to Baltimore. The whole point was this was the last rehearsal before the band was going to, to a gig in Baltimore. And I had no idea that I was, I didn't think I was going to Baltimore. I was just happy to play. But he wanted to let me know that I, that I was a sub and that the person who was supposed to go was going. So don't even... Don't even go there. And the second, which taught me a lot about music business in New York. The second thing was that he told me that that just blew me away. He says, that's the first time I've heard my parts that I wrote for the bass trombone played with not just skill, but with the soul and the spirit that I was looking for. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, I would have paid you to let me come and you're Frank Foster. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so when he said that, I was like, oh, okay, right. And so that started a relationship that lasted until till he died. I mean, I stayed with both of those men in, until they passed. Uh, they both gave me opportunities to make music and to be challenged and to get the joy of helping a, a, an ensemble or a class to, to work. And so it was just, I, I owe them. Because Bill Bill ran a, a rehearsal big band where everybody came through. And and so, yeah, so that's that's why well, I'm very clear about those are two of my major, um, major, major mentors. You can support what I do and help keep the archives freely available for everyone by becoming a member of the Jazz Session for just $5 a month. You'll get a bonus episode with every regular episode, plus early access to every show, additional bonus material, and other behind-the-scenes updates. You can do that today for 5 bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thank you. I write press releases and artist bios and liner notes for musicians. I've done that for many of the folks you've heard on this show and for others, too. You can see samples of my work at cranewrites.com. I'd love to write for you, so check out the samples and get in touch. Now back to the episode. Again, we're just we're we're going to only so lightly dance across the surface of a lot of things. But I think one thing it's important for people to know, and I think uh, they're hearing you say it, they're going to hear it in the music. But I think it's important for people to know your your career as a musician spans a remarkable array of different kinds of music. Mm-hmm. And 
everything I'm hearing you say kind of speaks to this idea of the the artificiality of the walls that we erect between the various facets of our yes. musical lives, not being not only not being necessary, but probably being harmful. And you seem very much the kind of person who's about uh, let's let's bring it all together and see what we can create. But if I'm putting words in your mouth, please stop me. But I I feel like that's kind of, that's a a sense I'm getting from what you're saying. 10 years ago, I would say, well, we're done with that because you just said exactly how I feel. Uh, I've actually, I guess, because I'm getting older, I've I've come to another place. The, The divisions, the walls, it doesn't matter whether they're necessary or not. They exist. And just like enslavement, it's not whether the nasty stuff exists. It's what you do with it. So those walls, from my point of view, have to be negotiated. And that's what I've been doing all my all my musical life. It's the nature of that negotiation that makes me who I am. So I'm not about to say, tear down all the walls. Uh, Frank Foster, we, we had some knockdown drag out. Frank Foster accused me and my ilk of of taking the center of the music away from black musicians in in New York and the United States and giving it to the Germans. I said, what are you talking about? You know, because that's... Now, he said that, but do you know who one of Frank's biggest, one of the people that he supported more than anybody else was Rahsaan Roland Kirk? (laughs) You see? So, you know, Mr. Two and Four, or One and Three, depending... Uh, was a, a devotee of of his buddy, Rahsaan Roland Kirk. And Frank had to negotiate that wall, too. So what happened, I mean, the big band that Frank put together, the Loud Minority Big Band, had all the elements of, just about all the elements of, of the so-called cliques in New York were in that band. So, I mean, you could get some straight-ahead swing, and then you go... You know, go to go back to the sax section and and or go to the trombone section. There's Lowe, who just got got to the rehearsal late because I was getting ready to go rehearse with Cecil Taylor. Right. You know, so so it's so it's it's, and he knew that it wasn't like I was sneaking around. See, this is this is I guess that's my point. I wasn't sneaking around about the walls, and I also I didn't have time to try to break the walls down. I wasn't going to argue with Frank. I wasn't interested in arguing with Frank about aesthetics. That's something that younger people need to understand. I wasn't interested in arguing with, I was interested in learning everything I could from Frank about how to swing, because that's what Frank knew how to do, and how to write, because that's also what Frank knew how to do, and how to arrange for a large ensemble. So why would I waste time arguing with him about who I did or didn't perform with? Who cares? <laughs> you know, so what's important is the way we negotiate and navigate and strategize around whatever differences perceived or, or, or real. Well, that's thank you so much. I, that adds so much context uh, to my thoughts. I really appreciate that. And uh, I'm going to I want to ask you another question in the notes for this album. There's a, a quote from you talking about fear. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the quote, uh, if you'll don't mind me reading your own words back to you, it says, another thing you can do with that fear is to find a place where you can be human, not in spite of the fear, but with the fear, use yes. the fear. I have to say, in fact, I can feel myself uh, 
<laughs> Sorry. I can feel myself being emotionally affected by that while I ask you. Because mm-hmm. that fear is so real, like in every aspect of our lives, I feel like. Whoever, I mean, matters, you and I have yeah. had very different lives. <laughs> mm-hmm. We come from very different uh, you know, backgrounds and uh, different parts of the country, everything. But I feel like there are a lot of things that unite us as people. And I feel like one of those is figuring out how do we deal with this kind of pile of fear that seems to get placed in the center of so many of our relationships with institutions, with each other. So I'm just, I'd love anything else you'd care to say about that. Cause I found that very powerful as my emotions suggest. If, if we let's take the, let's talk politics. If we take the present day politics and ignore the fear and say it doesn't exist, well, then you're Greg Abbotson. Goodbye. But we can also spend all of our time, oh, he's horrible. Trump is this, or Trump is that, or DeSantis is that. Yeah, he is. He's all of those things. What you going to do about it? That's the question. Because when it's all said and done, any of these people that we don't like are people. And all of the atrocities that have been done to human beings were done by human beings. The earth doesn't give a shit, right? Lions and tigers and bears, they don't give a shit. You know, they, they want to eat, and that's it. You know, so if you get in their way and they're hungry, they, they might eat you. But if you just move over there, you're fine. They're not trying to get you. The evil stuff that's done to humans is always done by other humans. If we don't, if our desire to be pure, our desire to get revenge, our desire to get power, our desire to not be natives, you know, we're all in this. If our desire to to overcome whatever our difficulties are, cause us to not address the humanity of evil, then it's not going to go away. And maybe it never goes away, but it needs to be, what do we do with it? What do we do with it? So that, that that's that's my that's my response to that. I mean I think it's 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 the same thing of what do you do with the walls in clicks in New York? It's what you do with it that matters. If you're a musician. Now if you're a journalist, okay, we I mean, know no bad things about journalists, but if you, maybe as a journalist, you might want to figure out, okay, well, you go do that. I'm busy trying to make this next tune. <laughs> I learned that from George Russell. For 10 years, I tried to get George Russell to join in the music activism in Boston. And, you know, because we need, you know, he's a great man, blah, blah, blah. And George kept saying, Bill, you do that. You young guys do that. He said, I don't have time. I'm struggling with with these notes. Frank Foster told me exact, I mean, almost word for word. And Frank, you, you know, Frank, you think Frank and 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 Bill are were different. Frank Foster and George Russell were really different. <laughs> um but, but Frank said exactly the same thing. Bill, you go do that. I'm not mad at you. You know, I might laugh at you, <laughs> but you you go do that. But I got to write this next. I got to write this next blues. I got to figure out what the trombones are going to play at letter G. 
that's where I that's that's all the energy I have. And I remember thinking, damn, that's cold. You know, that's lazy. No, that wasn't lazy. That was real. That was real. If I wanted to do that, then I needed to do that. If Frank told me what he was and was not going to do, well, that's what he was and was not going to do. Let's carry on. You see, so so that's all to say, I think too often, particularly in today's politics, we fight about the wrong things. This It's not that it's not that people are lying. It's not that, that well, some people are lying, but it's not that, <laughs> it's not that these, again, these divisions don't exist. It's not that they're fake. It's that how they matter is what matters. How you work with them is what matters. Because you have to work with them. I don't like getting wet, but when it rains, unless I go inside or wear an umbrella or Right, go to Fiji and take off all my clothes. To come on rain, <laughs> let's do it. In either case, it's about how I respond to that to that thing. I still may not. I'll come back to Boston. I still don't want to get wet. But boy, I could, I could kind of get used to <laughs> getting, getting wet in Fiji. Yeah, but that's another story. <laughs> I want to make sure that we do, in fact, talk about the, the book Kane and mm-hmm. its appearance, the text from uh, that book and the appearance in pieces on this on this record. Can you talk about, uh, it seems like such an interesting proposition to make musical settings for text and even the questions as basic as, is this music going to be programmatic in some way or uh, is it just going to provide a space for this text to live? But one doesn't have to describe the other, et cetera, et cetera. It feels like there's a million questions to answer if you decide to do that. And you've made that decision in these pieces. And I'm curious what what your thought yeah. process was when you approached it's, it. it. It's similar to what, it, what, 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 it's funny, we're on the same track here. It's similar to what I've been saying all along, that what I learned, given all of the different kinds of people and kinds of musical situations I've been in, what I've learned is that sometimes what you want to do is be programmatic with your relationship between music and text. And sometimes you don't. <laughs> Some, yeah. And in either case, 
you can write a programmatic piece of shit <laughs> or you can write a programmatic piece that's gorgeous. Yeah. Right? You can write, as Billy Taylor would call it, an abstract piece that has some tenuous relationship to the text and it's a piece of shit. Or you can use that situation to create something beautiful. The issue is, what do you want to do? You're interested in creating shit or you're interested in creating beauty? And if you're interested in creating beauty, what do you mean by beauty? And if you're going to be a composer, you better know what you mean by beauty. Hint, hint, it doesn't have to be the same thing every time. Your definitions don't have to be, you know, page 34 out of this aesthetic book. But you better know what you mean. So that whatever happens, you know how to judge what happened. So the next time, because it's one long story. It's just one long story. You know, when I was 10 years old, this lady, this little little white lady in Trenton, New Jersey, I'm standing in line. I just started junior high school. I'm standing in line uh, downstairs because I wanted to play drums learn to play drums because the word went out. If you come downstairs, then you can, you know, get lessons. Right? I wanted to play drums. So did everybody else, apparently. So I'm just standing in line, waiting my chance to go in and prove to somebody they should teach me drums. All of a sudden, this door opens over here. Literally, this is what happened. This door opens. This little white lady runs out and grabs me and pulls me in her office. Needless to say, if this were now, she would be fired, but nobody cared then. She pulls me in her office. She says, you have big lips and long arms. Interested in playing trombone. That's how I got to play trombone. Now, once I said yes, I wasn't saying yes to her silly statement. I was saying yes to here was the possibility of figuring out how to make some music. Because that's what I really wanted to do. Now, I'd had, you know, my father was a professional musician. He was a guitarist. Um very good guitarists and, and friends of Eddie Durham and, and so forth. Uh, I had taken some piano lessons when I was when I was younger, but I wanted to on my own. And instead of playing drums, I wound up playing trombone. I later found out that my grandfather, my mother's mother, who was a preacher who played fiddle, also had played trombone. My father, the guitarist, when he was in high school, had played trombone. I didn't know that. So I guess genetically... See what I mean? Genetically, I was supposed to play trombone. I didn't know <laughs> that I was supposed to play trombone genetically. All I knew was this little white lady grabbed me and pulled me into her office and suggested that I use my physical attributes to help her. That's the important thing. Because the other thing she said was, we need trombones this year. See, that's what she said. We need trombones this year. So that whole notion of in an ensemble your job is to help the ensemble blossom, to help the ensemble grow. Now, I certainly am not equating Miss Henry's junior high school orchestra, you know, with Frank Foster's loud minority. Not at all. Ha. But the notion that that's what you do, that's what your job is, and that you can get joy from that. I used to get joy in, in ninth grade you know, playing five, ten measures of a Broadway musical where the trombone was the lead voice. I got joy from that. And I didn't want to get, ever give that up. 
Yeah. As speaking as a kid who spent a lot of his high school in the band room, uh, when I probably should have been elsewhere <laughs> doing, doing other kinds of work, I completely understand the desire to grab onto that with both hands. <laughs> Throughout this whole interview, I've been thinking how refreshing it is when you talk to someone who just says what they actually think and mean and feel. I try to make those occasions common in my life, but mm-hmm. uh, it's not easy. And it's no. just been, it's been such a pleasure. I, I don't know, just having someone who just says, yeah, this, here's what it is. Here's what it is as I understand it right now. As I understand it. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. I may have a new idea. And that and, feels like the beauty of it, right though. Yeah. I mean, that, that, yeah. That, that, that possibility exists. That's it. That's it. Well, it, uh, I, it's ridiculous that the show doesn't need to have a time limit. I just know what people's attention spans are. And so I try to make them a certain length, but I, I could do this for another 10 hours. I've been talking with Bill Lowe, um, Bill and the signifying natives ensemble have a new album called sweet cane, which is really brilliant. You've been hearing excerpts of it, uh, throughout this interview, but it is an album that uh, rewards not only listening, but repeated listening and is not best served by one minute excerpts. So uh, please go find the record, which when you're listening to this interview uh, comes out in two days. So uh, it'll be everywhere oh. records are. And uh, you should definitely seek it out because it's really worth your time. Bill, it's, may, may, oh, may please, I, may you I, may uh, say anything. This is uh, the full title of the album is very important. It's Sweet King, S-W-E-T, Sweet King, Sweets, S-U-I-T-E-S, Sweets and Other Pedagogical Prompts. That's what this album is. Thank you. Thank you. I, I stand corrected and I appreciate that. <laughs> it's uh, It's been such uh, an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. I really I thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed this. I really have. Thank you. Thanks to my guest, Bill Lowe. Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Sarah Walter for the logo. Message me for more info about Sarah. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram and TikTok at The Jazz Session. Take a second right now to rate and review The Jazz Session wherever you listen. It helps me reach new folks. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcasts, which are a brief chat and The Jazz Session, my poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. If you value what you just heard, become a member for five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.